Well, we've been looking at the life of David, and uh, you know, we would mostly all know the story of David. He's got some very famous moments and infamous moments as well. David's an interesting character because he is uh, in the line of Christ, of course, uh, but he's one of these very unique type of biblical figures. Uh, we know a lot about his life. Uh, it's written about him in, in three books of, the, or three ultimately books of the Bible, and then he has a majority of the Psalms that he has written himself, giving us an insight to his journey uh, uh, really ultimately trying to be obedient to God. But we're going to look at his, this monumental story today that tells us a lot. There's a lot of nuances. There's a lot of things that sometimes we kind of read right over. In a story like this, we can see a lot of things we can take from. But I think there are really, really valuable lessons that we can learn from this story. When, when spoken of, of David... You have to know this. This has been our theme the entire series, is that David was a person of obedience. David was not perfect. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. I mean, clearly, I can't even drink without spilling water down my shirt before I speak, right? I'm a mess. But the fact is, is that we are all striving to be what God called us and wants us to be and ultimately created us to be. And David is one of these people. But what he did that was unique was he was willing to say yes to God in most cases, in most of his journey, than more willing than he was to say just yes to David. But today is one of those days where we're, we're, we're going to look at the struggle that we can all relate to. Apostle Paul, this is our scripture for the whole series, he said this about David in a sermon. And he said this, he says, And when he, God, removed him, Saul, who was ruling before David, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, a person who is about the things that I am about. But then the most important part here is who will do all of my will. David is someone who is willing to go where God calls him to go. In the midst of fear, in the midst of worry, in the midst of, uh, uh, I think, absolute, like, um, I, I think, tragedy and injustice, he's willing to still go. David's problem is very relatable to our problem today in these two sermons. It, uh, that one last week and this week. David's problem begins when he becomes more successful than what he ever thought he would be. He becomes more reliant in a way on really in on himself. Now he has an awakening after this sermon, which will happen next week. But we're going to find and just look at some of the difficulties of when David is more concerned about the things of himself than the things of God, of which God called him to. And in this, it creates and causes, I think, a chain reaction of events that really ultimately bring his kingdom into a failing state so quickly. So today we're going to look and we're going to see the damage that occurs when justice is handled with apathy. When justice is held back for 
an advancement or for reasons that David has. And we're going to actually look at what rises up in the vacuum of that. What's left? What does an injustice do unchecked and undealt with? What does it rise up within others around us or those who are experiencing the injustice? So I titled this message, The Failing Kingdom. It goes right on the heels of the story of David and Bathsheba. And, it, and the narrator brings us right to, ultimately, where God leaves off with what's coming David's way. So they waste no time to bring us here. And I, I would say the whole direction, if you could think about it during this message, is really the consequences of injustice. God is a God of justice. God is a God uh, who, who, who hates injustice because of who he is. And injustice is the opposite of who God is. That's the kind of God we serve. And so, but there are always consequences of injustice. And I think injustice comes in all different shapes and sizes. It comes from the playground when the kiddo takes the toy from the other kiddo. Like this here, put this up on the screen. You guys know this, parents, right? It's the kid who's like, that was mine, you took it. And as a parent, it's so hard when you see another kid and they take the toy and you're like, my baby. And they're upset. And you can see it's the greatest injustice to them. And as life progresses, you'll see from the childhood playground when we recognize an injustice all the way to what would be probably one of the most egregious Injustices, which would be during the Soviet era of the show trials that were happening. This is when the, uh, the courts are corrupt and they're unjust. The scales are tilted. The show trial was a predetermined outcome that it was just used for propaganda and intimidation that don't do these things that would challenge us or we will prosecute you publicly and we already know what's going to happen. They were a sad time in our history. But ultimately, in, injustice, I think, is a miscarriage of justice. And what follows the feelings that people experience from experiencing injustice is you will experience loss, you will experience pain, you will experience hurt. You know what I'm talking about. You will experience all these things. Anger will rise up. Discouragement will rise up. The list can go on and on and on. But where there is injustice... Like there will always be, it will always usually be followed by a reaction of anger and bitterness and resentment. Now, we as believers are called to something different, even in the midst of injustice. We're, we're, we're called to rise above that. But we as believers also can't be those who create injustice or even stand for injustice. Proverbs 20.10, this is David's son, writes this. He says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike in abomination to God. He cannot stand an unjust weight. Psalms 106, after David really experiences all the things he has, he reflects and writes, blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times times. He learned this very valuable lesson in this story, in the, in the story prior, is that when you create an injustice, it has consequences that you don't want to see its fruit. It's damaging. 
I think the temptation, though, always, whenever I read a story like this, is to look at what's happening and go, that's an injustice. And I think that it's important to recognize where we see injustice as believers and how to handle injustice the way God asks us to do it, which is specific. But I think that ultimately everyone should first internally look inward. And this is why this is a hard message. Because what is the injustice inward? What's happening within our own life? The temptation is to always look out, but we should always evaluate our heart and our actions. Let me give you some very basic examples. Have you ever, in an argument or in a situation in a relationship, caused an injustice? You can relate. Have you ever, in your work, caused an injustice to maybe promote your own self? Now, don't raise your hand because these are difficult things. But you can continue to evaluate your heart. I, I think when it comes to injustice, it's much easier to point it out somewhere else. But we have to always start from our own heart. When Jesus says, you're going to have to first remove the log from your own eye before you begin to pick the speck out of your brother's eye, we should take that very, very seriously. So I need to say that first when we start to talk about injustice and we talk about bitterness and we talk about unforgiveness because we first must evaluate, I think, our own lives all the time. So let me bring you here. Israel, let me just bring you right to the story. Israel has uh, been defending itself against a great enemy. And David was staying home before. This is how he got in trouble with Bathsheba. But he goes out and leads the army and defeats this great enemy. The kingdom is safe for now. David's kingdom, though, has been rocked by his great sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and the cover-up. And it creates an instability within the kingdom when he acted out of, that, uh, of those moments and broke three of the Ten Commandments and three ones that God has a strong weight against those things. But God still, ultimately, he keeps David's promise of his covenant, but God does not go without punishing David. And now, let me read the punishment that we read last week, because this is how it's going to take place. Second Samuel 12, 10. Now, therefore, the, word, the, the sword shall never depart from your house, David. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you in your own house, David. And so David doesn't know what's coming his way. But he's been warned that there's a consequence, David, for your actions. And what you did is going to warrant something that you don't want to reap what it did. So let me give you three lessons from this story that we're going to learn about injustice, about bitterness, and about ultimately, I would say, forgiveness and unforgiveness. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to summarize this part of it because it's 19 verses. But let me just bring you into the story. David's oldest son, his heir, is a guy named Amnon, and he's the heir to the throne. Now, if you remember in 2 Samuel 2-7, God said in his covenant with David that I am going to raise up one from you that will ultimately be greater than you in a way. He's not talking about Christ. He's talking about Solomon, but David doesn't know that. But your son I'm going to be with. I'm going to be like a father to this son. So David's thinking in the way that 
kings are then, uh, it have lines of succession. He's thinking my oldest. But he's not thinking how God thinks. And so this, in a way, David loses sight of the fact that he was the youngest of his family yet chosen to lead. Right? He was not chosen by the standards of man, but chosen by the standards of God. And so, but David thinks that Amnon is the heir to his throne of whom God's talking about. But this guy clearly is not one to lead. He has an uncontrollable, his son has an uncontrollable, deep lust for his stepsister. Now, the Bible has weird stuff like this, okay? We're all just going to have to move past this in a way. But he has this uncontrollable lust for his stepsister, Tamar. She's beautiful. She's one of the royal virgins. And, and she is given a very special garment by David to, to signify that she has held her standards and, and stature together because she has a vision for the future. And one day, someone she will ultimately be with and so she has a life ahead of her that looks very promising for her. But then Amnon goes to David because he's kind of maybe the firstborn, kind of gets whatever he wants. David's like he's the heir. And this is where David starts to uh, make his mistakes. It's funny, in the Bible, the first is the most loved special child, and I get it because of succession. But haven't we flipped that way? Isn't your youngest just your favorite? Sorry, my oldest is the room. <laughs> we all, my youngest always is like, I'm your favorite, right? And we're like, Shh, go away. Yeah, of course you are. But Bo is my favorite, of course. And so when, when, I, when I look at our culture now, it's so different because it was all based on passing things down to the heir. And so David is in a place where he is no longer thinking like a leader the way God is called leaders. He's thinking the way the world thinks and judges leadership the way the world judges it. And maybe ultimately when it comes to God's kingdom, he's very serious about who leads it. But ultimately David tells his, uh, he goes to David and says, send my sister, my stepsister, to come take care of me because I'm sick and need her to bring me food. And so David does. And she brings him food. And he's got this whole plot that David doesn't know about and Tamar doesn't know about. But ultimately, the plot is, is to take his sister by force. And eventually put her future and does essentially her future and life at risk. And so the thing is about this is that Tamar in the moment, he propositions her. And she says, no, wait, this is unlawful. So she, she, she tries to get him to see this corrupt-minded son of David. That Listen, it's against the law, one. Two, it's wronging me in my future. Three, it's going to wrong you in your future. So he, he keeps stopping her and saying, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And finally she throws a Hail Mary and she says, listen, let's just go to dad. I even hate telling these stories like this. Let's go to dad, and dad will allow us to get married, and we can do this right. Now, she knows, biblically, you cannot do that based on of, uh, the law. But she's thinking, if I can just get him, I'm sure, to go to David, he will stop this. But he then says, you know what? I do not care about any of these consequences. I want what I want. And he's kind of a depraved man. 
and he takes it by force. He is what would be a quintessential type of leader that God said, you do not want this type of king. He takes her by force, and then he immediately hates her afterwards. He forces her out of the room, locks his door. Her future's over, and she is now someone who uh, will probably never find someone to be with in the way the culture was. And so let's pick up in the story. The first point, the first lesson we're going to want to remember when we read this is that injustice breeds hatred. The story is not about Tamar and Amnon. The story is about Tamar's brother, right? His name is Absalom. And it's about him and David. The story grows into something different where an injustice breeds hatred. And I wrote this down. The failure, the failure to uphold justice, it invites anger and bitterness into a heart. And if you've ever experienced that, the very first thing comes knocking on your door when you experience injustice is anger and bitterness. And it wants to take hold of a heart. And it does in this situation. 2 Samuel 13, 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Meaning this. Don't talk too much about this. Because he's going to be the king. And you do not want to die. Remember who he is. Do not take this to your heart. So Tamar lived in a des as a desolate woman in her brother's Absalom's house. And that was her fate. He took everything from this girl. And that's what God warned Israel that kings will take, take, take. This is a little bit of a difference where we see David in most of his journey gave, gave, gave. Until he started taking, taking, taking. And here we go. We have this story. But, at, but And here we go. Now this is where the injustice happens. When David heard of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now, David's anger is not justice. For the one who is the judge of Israel, this is not justice. I always laugh whenever I see a, a, a leader, whether it's in, in politics or whatever, when they say, we can't stand for this, but they don't do anything about it. I'm like, stop. Just stop. It's like that. This is what that would feel like to Absalom and Tamar. It's like, I am very upset about it, but I'm not doing anything about it. Just a lot of, you know, feelings. But what we don't realize is in this moment that David has the law to contend with. So he's kind of stuck on a lot of options. But he has one option. He doesn't exercise. So in the law, if this happens, and, it's not, it's, and, and, and they're not related, but someone takes and violates someone else, then they have to pay a restitution to the family for what happened. And David's like, well, this is, these are both my kids, so I can't pay myself. So he's in a pickle here. But then at the same time that this happening between brother and sister is forbidden in a violation that they can't be married because what would happen is if it did happen, then that person, that man would have to marry her and take care of her. And David's like, well, but the law says I can't marry them. It's very strict in, in uh, two books of the Bible about 
that law. And so he's kind of stuck, but he has one option. And out of every one of those laws, when a person acts in such a way, they are to be put out from the people of Israel, which would be banishment. And here's where the problem comes in for David, because this is his error. And he's thinking a little bit more about succession, maybe thinking about that promise God made to him, and less about justice. And here's where God doesn't stand for things like this. He could have banished him, but he doesn't. It was just an inconvenient injustice. I love these great words of Martin Luther King Jr. He said this, Injustice and corruption will never be transformed by keeping them hidden, but only by bringing them out into the light and confronting them with the power of love. Have you ever been done wrong? Is the first thing you think of is, how do I love this person more? Mm -mm. That's not how you think. I want to confront this, and with the power of love, we're going to transform this. I'm going to bring love to the table. These are powerful words that are not practiced often when injustice happens. The lesson we can learn from this, I would say, this part of David's apathy and injustice, thinking about his own succession selfishly, is this. We can ask our heart, what, what, are, what is our heart scales? How are they weighed? Right? How are they, these scales lining up with the scales of the kingdom, the weights of justice? Jesus had a lot to say about this. If you just look up any passage on injustice, you, can't, you don't have enough time to read what God thinks about injustice. It's littered. The whole Bible is littered with in, uh, what God feels about injustice and what he does to it. But we can ask ourselves, is my heart carrying the scales of, uh, of the kingdom's justice? Are they weighed correctly? And we only gain in that scale um, by, by knowing more about how Christ approached the world and approached uh, injustice. We can only know this by reading the writings of the apostles, where Paul would even write in a very personal way, uh, Alexander the copper maker, he hurt me greatly, but God will ultimately deal with him. Right? Like It was just so simple and so basic, but they were constantly being harassed and beaten and killed. And he, they would just say, listen, we're going to have to pray for our enemies. And God will have to deal with the injustices. And the question we can ask ourselves is, how are our scales of our heart? And ultimately, do we ignore them? Are we tipping the scale when it's convenient for us? This is a good lesson for us to learn. This is a trap David found himself in where his anger wasn't enough. He had options, even legally had options, but he didn't do them. And we can't look aside when we create an injustice because it worked out for us. We have to be a people who have the scales of heaven in our heart. The second part of this story is bitterness Ultimately, the, the thing we can learn from it, bitterness justifies its sin always. Bitterness will always justify its sin to remedy the bitterness, which it never makes it right. I think a heart filled with bitterness, hatred, leads us to places we couldn't even imagine. Now, 
I've been bitter three times in my life. I was really evaluating it when I was reading this story. Really bitter. Okay, so I'll be the first one to confess I was bitter three times in my life. I'm ashamed of all three. I held on to resentment, and I was angry. And I'm going to even make it worse. That bitterness happened only after I became a Christian. So even worse, I knew the truth. And yet I did something differently. I'm no different than David. I remember one of them was so bad when the person would walk into the room, they just so offended me. And they, and, and they were, like, in a sense, annoying, and they offended me. They said terrible, mean things. And I would just smile and walk it off, and you know what I mean? Like, okay, God, give me the strength. But eventually, I gave in to bitterness. And when they'd walk in the room, I'd be all happy and talking. Have you ever been like this when you're bitter or angry or offended? I'd, walk, I'd be all happy and talking, and they'd walk in the room, and I'd be like, Mrr. and I would look at them like, oh, I hate you. Now, I have been saved from literally condemnation of hell, and here I am holding someone uh, accountable like that. I'm the person who was forgiven this great debt like Jesus uses this parable, but yet I'm strangling someone over a few dollars. I'm living the parable. I'm living David's story in that moment. I remember it was so hard for me to like realize that I did one day. And I realized, and, and it's funny, this person and I right now are extremely close. Very good friends. And, uh, and I think, oh, wow, what God can do when all I wanted to do was uh, like get away from this person or worse, bring justice back. But it was God's to do. But his work on my heart cracked the door. When you think about bitterness, it will justify its sin. I'll give you an extreme example that you may remember. Do you remember the story of Killdozer? In 2004, this guy, Marvin uh, uh, Hemmeyer, he owned a welding shop. And what he ended up doing is selling some land in the city council, zoned the land in such a way that it blocked the way to get to his welding shop. And so Marvin was petitioning the council, and they were turning him down. They wanted the profits of the concrete plant more than they wanted his, uh, his voice in the town. And so he just went through so many steps, and finally he felt like I could get nowhere, but he took note of everybody who stopped him. And so what Marvin did is he, sp <clears throat> he spent an entire year building this and he built this and so offended so mad he made a one-way trip he sealed himself in so he couldn't get out he mounted 50 calibers on this thing and he made it ultimately indestructible so bad when he started his rampage if you remember this the they were considering the governor was calling in airstrikes on this the whole town went crazy he went through home by home of the city council and destroyed their homes. He had a list they found of 13 of them. He went to the mayor's office and bulldozed the mayor's office. He went to the newspaper outlets that reported uh, that he couldn't get them to report the story and bulldozed that. He went through every single place. And then he had a list of names, so we don't know what he was going to do next. He eventually got stuck and then eventually, uh, sadly, took his own life. But I think about it, I think, wow, what... Will bitterness justify, and how will it justify its sin? Psalms 37, 8 through 9 says, Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. 
For evil doers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This is a valuable lesson. I think David learned, and maybe he learned it and forgot it or learned it too late. Um, and it's a valuable lesson that he didn't pass to his son Absalom for some reason. Now let's pick up the story. In 2 Samuel 13, 23 through 3, I'll just give you a brief summary and then end into a statement. This injustice happens, and this is how bitterness grows and justifies its sin. David does nothing. Absalom doesn't forgive, and he grows. Two years go by after this happens. So much so that shortly after this incident, he names his youngest daughter Tamar. And so Absalom is reinforced every time he is playing with Tamar and calling Tamar over. He is reinforced with the hatred he has for his brother. And it becomes a, what would be a lifelong sentence by the naming of this daughter to remember what was done to her. The bitterness had taken such deep root. He's sitting across the table at David's house looking at his brother knowing I can do nothing to you right now because you can take my life. But he grows in anger and puts on the face and smiles through, yet bitterness grows and grows and grows. Now, let's bring it to the real thing. We can talk about this in Absalom, but what about in our relationships, our marriages, right? Our family relationships, our work relationships. We can sit there and smile, but thinking... When are you going to die? <laughs> we can think those thoughts, right? Those things grow and grow unchecked. And, he had, and ultimately, he gets his plans ready over this two years. Things calm down. He puts on the face. And then he calls a big party. And you know what? In the Bible, they party different. They had a sheep shearing party. Okay, apparently, it was a big deal. And so he invites everybody to the sheep shearing party. And he says, I want to take my brothers with me. And David says, sure, I'm not going to go, though. He goes, okay, but can, can I have Amnon? And he goes, why do you want him? He's like, I, I want him. I really think he's a part of our family. He, whatever he does, he manipulates and argues. The Bible's not super clear about it. But David releases him to go. And everything is set. And here's what happens. 2 Samuel 13, 28. Then Absalom commands his servants. Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. And you would think in this moment he would have felt justified. You would think in this moment that's when the relief would have come. And that's how we always think when we think of revenge. But it never is sweet. Bitterness just wants more. It will spawn more injustice. 2 Samuel 13, 34, 13 through, uh, uh, 34 through 14, uh, all of chapter 14. I'll summarize it like this. He's on the run. He knows what he did. He's on the run, and he takes off. Doesn't this remind you of David and Saul? A little different, though. <laughs> different circumstances. But he's now on the run like his dad was on the run, except he's on the run for murder. And he runs to his grandfather, which I don't know if you know this, but his grandfather's a king. And his mother, who was married to David, uh, was the daughter of this kingdom, and they had a treaty. And so it's, it's uh, Geshur, and then he was married off, so he goes to his grandfather, the king, and he brings his whole family, and he runs there and stays there where it's safe. 
But the problem is, is I think this is David's problem. He, it, time goes by. Three years go by. And he's off. So we have five years now since the incident. Five years of bitterness in Absalom. And he's not a dumb guy. And five years are growing in this schemer. This, this hatred. And David's not reconciling the relationship. And David mourns for three years, the Bible says, because he thinks the line, the end of the promise of God might be coming to an end because his oldest was killed. But he's paying the price for what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. And, and, and as he mourns, the Bible says he looks out and his heart longs for Absalom. But if you really look at what the word really, really means, it means that he longs to go get him like Saul when wanted to go get him. He, he doesn't have a heart that wants his son. He's not like the parable Jesus gives us where the father runs and waits and hopes for his son to come home. David is struggling with the fact that he, does he become Saul now and go hunt him down? And he's having a real struggle with his anger towards his own son. Story goes like this. Joab convinces David to bring him home. Dave, he does bring him home. He allows him to do it. But he says he can live outside the city. I don't want to see his face. So it's still there. He cannot reconcile the relationship. And Absalom is growing more and more bitter. He spends two years away from his dad. I, I, I don't, we, we've all had moments where I, I was, I was uh, uh, separated from my parents for a while through anger and bitterness, didn't speak to them. I really regret these times because I just, uh, I, I thought my offense and hurt and anger was worth the separation. And, and I really regret those moments. I think of like Absalom, like he's feeling this also as a son who's been banished. But now remember, he is the heir apparent now. He's the one to take the throne. And so David has a real problem on his hands. He wants to forgive his son. He doesn't want to forgive his son, but yet he is the heir. And the kingdom's getting restless. Like, why are you banishing this guy? He's going to lead us one day. And we like Absalom. He's cool. And he's got unbelievable hair. That's what the Bible says. And, you know, it, it's difficult. But he lives out the city doesn't see his father's face two years, and then finally Absalom demands to see his dad, and then David forgives him. It's such a cool story until, until this point because David then is like the prodigal son story. He's the father. He forgives his son. The prodigal son comes home, even though the son you know, ultimately knew he was taking a risk that David could kill him, and he forgives him. The lesson from this is this is that the kingdom does not hold offense or harbor revenge for believers. How do we translate this story? We don't harbor offense or hold bitterness. I don't think you should just look the other way because forgiveness is a process, right? I've been through enough therapy that I've realized this, okay? I can't go against what I do know to be true. It's a process. But that fact that we want to reconcile, that we desire to reconcile is important. Not every relationship is reconcilable. Right? There are some things you're just going to have to forgive from a distance, and I understand that. But bitterness must always be dealt with because it will manifest things and sins we didn't think we were capable of. And so a thing for maybe ask for us would be this, is that, you know, what do we do, what do we still hold on to 
when we're in a situation like Absalom? Will we hang on to it? Will we be like David? Will we hang on to it? Or will we act like David when the time came and forgive this son? What justifications are we considering right now? What behaviors will we allow because we are angry and bitter? Or there's unforgiveness. We should ask ourselves these questions and follow Christ's call to forgive. You know, when Jesus was being crucified, he said some important words. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. When Jesus was being taken away in the garden, Peter took out his sword and tried to strike the soldiers. And Jesus said, put that away. Do you not know what we're about? This is not what we're about. My kingdom doesn't work like that. It's hard when you feel injustice, but it's important to move toward forgiveness. Your father forgave you. The last thing is this, and this will be the last point, uh, and I hope I can finish it. We all have a choice on what path to take. We can either fight or we can forgive. And you will be presented with this over and over and over in your faith. You can fight or you can choose to move towards forgiveness. It's always a crossroads. It's always a, uh, a split in the road, if you will. And let me read this great passage from James 16, uh, uh, 3.16 through through uh, chapter 4 and 7. It says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This is probably one of the most important uh, uh, verses, I think, in James. But, but wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This has so much to do with justice and injustice. How we act in the midst of it. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in by our peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? It is, not, is it not that your possessions or passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And it doesn't mean that like Amnon should have said, God, can you give me my sister? It's not like this. It's we do not consult God and what he wants for us. Because we're talking about desires and passions. We must consult God on those things. I sadly think God... David did not in this moment. I know Absalom did not. But Absalom does this, and we'll wrap up with this. He uses this forgiveness as almost a cloak to protect him and to go along with while he plots to overthrow the kingdom because his hatred for his father has grown now beyond his first victim to his dad, who maybe in his mind thinks, didn't punish his son the way he should have. And so what he does is ambition grows. The Bible says that he was so attractive, and this means that 
maybe he was really attractive, I don't know, but in the people's eyes, he was what they wanted, and so it was dangerous to David because they desire the things of the flesh and not the way God chooses things. They desired Absalom's popularity, his beautiful hair, his beautiful family. They were the perfect politicians of the day that everyone was like, wow! But his heart was corrupt, and ultimately through bitterness. And I would say ultimately bitterness grew in the injustice. And so he grows and grows in popularity. He sits at the gates and pretends to do David's job. And he says, hey, hey listen, you don't have to go to David. Come to me. And I'll tell you what, what happened. And he was acting as judge. And what he did is he gave favor to anybody's judgment. He said he was basically the Oprah of, of the day. Of like, you get that case and you get that case. Everyone won. With Absalom, he was winning everything for everyone. And so they would go home, and they'd be like, wow, he's going to be a great king. He would kiss their, he would kiss their head, which kings didn't do. And he would, when they went to bow, he would lift them up by their hand. He was playing the game. But he did not care about people. He cared about himself. He was the first person to get a chariot in Israel's history. And he was the first in, as a king and ride around in the city. It was a small city. And he would have 50 people go ahead of him as a parade everywhere he went. God hated the chariots and hated this type of procession that kingdoms did. It was the first time this happened and it wasn't the last. And then ultimately at the end of the day, this went on for four years and David didn't do anything about this. It grew and grew and grew. Psalms, or Proverbs uh, 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Listen to the words I underline. Haughty eyes, lying, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run, <clears throat> run rapidly to evil, false witness uh, and who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. Is this not Absalom? He has become this. He has become the abomination, essentially. I think we have to continually check our heart or we'll be shocked of where our heart can go when we have unforgiveness. David decides ultimately to let Absalom do as he wished. And Absalom throws a coup and takes all of David's advisors and announces that he's king. And then in a weird twist of irony and fate, David's greatest advisor happened to be Bathsheba's grandfather. And it was the greatest betrayal to David because he joins Absalom. But David's actions had consequences. And now David's in trouble. We'll pick the rest of the story up next week, but I'll say from this point of the crossroads, I would say the path of Christ is forgiveness and reconciliation. We should never get off that path. You will always reconcile a relationship or at least you can at least get to a place where unforgiveness doesn't imprison you and bitterness doesn't drive you to ends that you don't want to go. Christ is always calling us to forgive. And he is always calling us to stand for justice and what's right and not perpetuate injustice. Do you have a crossroads in your life? What is Christ calling you to? And I would say this, what is bitterness calling you to? It's a pretty easy path if you look at it that way. Let's bow our heads. We're going to take communion in a minute. And I'm going to invite everybody, um, you know, while we sing this song of, um, during communion.
I want you to take a moment. And this is a wonderful time to take communion. Because we're talking about how Christ broke his body and shed his blood. In John 3.16, Christ, God so loved the world, even before you did anything, he gave Christ. The offenses and injustice of humanity, and yet God still forgave. And so as you take your communion today, in any moment while we're um, singing the song, you can stay seated, you can stand when you're done, however you want to do it. But in that moment, this is a great time to reflect as a church, as one body, as a people who seek justice, want to have the, the kingdom scales in our heart that weigh correctly. And we want to be a people of forgiveness and we want to root out bitterness and we want to strive for redemption and restoration. And that's the kingdom's message. And so this is a great moment to first remember our example, Christ, and thank him for setting the path clear for believers to walk the path of justice and forgiveness. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we get a moment to just reflect on you, Christ. Thank you for leading the path for us. God, we thank you for stories like David and Absalom who who unfortunately suffer greatly because of the consequences of sin and rebellion and apathy and, and the scales of justice way off. But God, in light of the pain of humanity, a fallen world, God, you have brought a light in darkness, and that is the path we follow. It's hard, but we choose it, God, today. It's difficult, but we will challenge ourselves first before we look at the world. We will look at ourselves and then be an assistance to restoration to the world. Inspire us and challenge us and speak to us, Holy Spirit, right now and throughout the day and throughout the week. We love you so much. And thank you for next week as we see through David an example of a king who will rise and how he rises. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.